On this episode, it's the return of Amy Arandia Ustinson. She's here to talk with me about the dark fantastic, race and the imagination from Harry Potter to the Hunger Games by Ebony Elizabeth Thomas. We reflect on what we read growing up. We have deeply spicy thoughts about fan fiction, Island of the Blue Dolphins, and what specifically is the correct pronunciation of G-I-F. It's GIF. Oh yeah, we go there. Plus, Who gets to opt out of reading certain books in the classroom? And who specifically can opt in? I'm Jeannie Phillips. This is Vermont Ed Reads, the podcast by, for, and with Vermont educators. Let's chat. Thank you so much for joining me, Amy. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Hi, um, my name is Amy Arandia Estensen. I am a Filipina American educator, and I currently am working at Shelburne Farms as a professional learning facilitator in educating for sustainability. Um, In general, that means we work with teachers and schools to support their process and practice and to integrate um, concepts of sustainability and equity into their work. Amy, you were on the podcast not long ago in the fall talking about one of our mutually favorite books, Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmer. And I remember that conversation so fondly. So I'm super excited to have you back on. And um, full disclosure, Amy and I have been working together on a webinar called Who's Outside? Building an Anti-Racist Bookshelf. And this book, um, Ebony Elizabeth Thomas's The Dark Fantastic has been crucial as we've been thinking through how to go even deeper about thinking about what books are we're uh, getting into the hands of students. And that's been super fun. So I'm really excited for this conversation. And I'm a little bit daunted and nervous um, about it too, but we'll get to that in a minute. Besides The Dark Fantastic, Amy, what are you reading right now? It's so interesting because um, I'm actually reading a lot of academic articles and papers on decolonization, um, land as pedagogy, uh, place-based education, and um, equity work, and and that's kind of my my professional cloud that I'm in at this moment. However, reading this book recently has really kind of sparked my love of young adult novels and and fiction and also um, dystopia writing. And so I'm really eager to get back into that uh, as soon as I can get my hands on some juicy books. Excellent. I, um, I know that one of the articles you're reading is one of my favorites, Eve Tuck's um, Decolonization is Not a Metaphor. Is that right? Yes, that is. Yeah. Um, and the other one that I'm reading and rereading is, uh, um, I think it's called Teaching Back to Manifest Best Destinies. I'm going to get the, the name correct, um, by Dolores Calderon. She's one of their authors. I have read that one too. It's so good. Okay. Before we go down that path, <laughs> let's come on back here. So, um, I've been really overwhelmed by how to ask intelligent questions about this book because it is so 
smart and brimming full of insights and provocations and has me thinking so much that I was almost not even sure where to begin. But I'm going to start at Ebony Elizabeth Thomas's starting point, which is she begins the book by talking about herself as a young reader. And um, I think it's on page three, even she writes, magic was inaccessible to me. There was a lack of black characters in general and black girls in particular in books about the magic and the fantastical, she writes. And, and she begins with this premise that even though that wasn't available to her in characters that look like her, she needed magic and that all children really deserve magic. And, um, and yet it's been um, disproportionately distributed, if you will. So I'm wondering, Amy, if we might start with stories of ourselves as young readers, if we might step back and imagine just the way Ebony Elizabeth Thomas does ourselves as little people looking for magic. Um, it's such an interesting thought. And uh, I did have a, a childhood that was rich in books and storytelling um, it was just one of those things that my family did together every night. We, we got in the bed and read books together before we went to sleep every single night. Um, and I distinctly remember my dad reading to my brothers and I, and we read the entire Hobbit series. We read the entire Wizard of Oz series. And so there was a lot of that magical fantasy land um, in, my, in our home through those kinds of books. Um, interestingly enough, I remember a moment in school when our teacher was was reciting or starting to recite certain, um, what do you call them, um, nursery rhymes. And I grew up in a in a largely white suburb of Syracuse, New York, and uh, there were literally four families of color that I was aware of in the entire school, ours being one of them, um, and. Out of those families, uh, three of them were first generation or second generation folks, Americans. And um, so our teacher was starting to recite nursery rhymes and she invited us to like complete the nursery rhyme as teachers back then were wont to do. And uh, none of the kids in the class could do it, but I could <laughs> because it was, it was kind of a point um, at home that we learned these American nursery rhymes and my mom recited them and they read us books with all of them. And um, so it was a part of my childhood and I realized it might not have been uh, a part of my American counterpoints um, childhoods as well, but, but there was access to those worlds of magic and fantasy and what ifs um, through these books at home um, constantly, yeah. What about you, Jeannie? Oh, I envy you that. Um, most of my reading at home was done on my own. Um, we were not a family of books, but I was a kid who read and I would um, hide to read because my mom uh, thought I, I would grow up to be antisocial. And, and maybe she was right. Um, but uh, so I would hide often to read, including in a tree house. And, um, the first book I remember reading that was really fantasy was A Wrinkle in Time. 
um, which I reread as an adult and did not love nearly as much as I did when I was a kid. <laughs> um, but when I was a kid, I loved that book and the whole series. And um, the thing that drew me though, uh, at that time, that was the most fantastical for me was the whole family, this idea, like the dad goes missing, right? And they go in search of the dad. And so many of the books I read at that time were me wishing, because my father had passed away when I was seven and my parents had been divorced, was me wishing um, for, for a whole family, for this sense of what I called at the time or thought of as at the time as normalcy this middle-class family life that was beyond my family. And so what that's made me think of as I can, am an avid reader of young adult and middle grades fiction is what would have happened if I had been introduced to something like the benefits of being an octopus or some other story where there were families that looked like mine and I could see myself in those families. And I don't remember many books like that. Yeah. It's interesting that the idea of, of books in which you could see yourself, and thank goodness, Jeannie, there are so many more books about different kinds of families that are being published now and have been for a while. Um, but I'm understanding now that all the books that I was exposed to as a child, and, and in school at the time we were reading, we had readers, right? So there were um, textbooks that were put together with stories that were pre-selected. We didn't have bookshelves full of books that you could go and choose what you wanted to read, what appealed to you. Um, we were basically told to read what was <laughs> what was already pre-selected. But um, looking back on that, nothing, I believe nothing really represented my family and my experience in any of those texts. And it isn't until recently that I actually understood that. Um, and so I feel like my imagination of, of seeing myself in those other worlds um, was incredibly limited. And I, I loved reading, but I also know that none of them were like me, but I didn't even notice. And so I wonder what that says about the impact um, of culture and assimilation. Imagination. Well, and so right away on page three, um, our author of The Dark Fantastic writes, the problem of representation has created discord in the collective imagination. And when I read that, it landed like a thud, like a thud of truth, but also like, oh, like right in my gut. And, um, and I guess that's what I hear you talking about is this thud of like, we've, we've, um, constricted our very imagination. Yeah, and that I've, is somehow it's, um, it highlighted my, my limitations. If I'm thinking about my imagine as, imagination as being within a frame, it highlighted those borders of the frame for me that I had just wasn't paying attention to before. And it makes me think of, of things when we're exposed to these days that kind of shake up, um, what we imagine is possible. And then I realized, oh my God, my imagination of what's possible has been so limited and I didn't even realize it. Yes. Whew. I know, right? That's the scary thing is when you realize what you didn't realize. That's the paradigm shift of like, oh my, yes. And I think all, all the time about education and about the world and talking to my son recently too about, 
I'm going to say economics, like this, our tie to the stock market and our sense of how economics works, but also about how schools work and how we are limited by our imagination. We can't think beyond what we already know. And so then thinking about that in our most creative forms, like writing and art, just um, breaks my heart. And what you said earlier about um, not seeing yourself made me think a lot about um, towards the end of this book, um, Ebony Elizabeth Thomas says, um, she talks about writing fan fiction. She wrote fan fiction for Harry Potter as a teacher. When she first discovered Harry Potter, she was a huge fan. And she wrote all this fan fiction from the point of view of Angelina Johnson, who is the black character really in Harry Potter, at least the most well-known um, and she tried writing about, from the perspective of Hermione, she says, while I loved Hermione Granger, perhaps too much for a young adult needing to leave childhood behind, she wasn't a mirror for my experiences because I did not look like her. I knew that I could never view the wizarding world through her eyes, but only peer over her shoulder. And it makes me wonder how often um, our students feel like instead of stepping inside the shoes of, they're peering over the shoulder of characters, particularly our, our readers who, are, um, who don't see themselves represented on the page. Yeah, that really struck me as well. And, you know, as, as a teacher, we often ask students to make personal connections to the characters and the settings and the challenges um, within books. So we ask them to make a connection to themselves um, and a connection to like the context that they might be in so that they can deep, more deeply relate to what's happening in the story and engage with it. Um, but reading um, Ebony Elizabeth Thomas's writing about fan fiction and the ways that people are needing to restory, rewrite the story and re-envision it. Um, it. It opened up a window for me in that if, if that character, that fictive character is indeed not a mirror for the students and they need to peer over the shoulder in order to be engaged, maybe the questions that we should be asking students aren't about like how are you similar or different from that character or um, why do you think that she feels this way? Have you ever felt that way? Maybe the question is more like if you were in this story, not if you were that character, because maybe that character is so impossibly different from whoever the reader is that you can't even, like my backstory that I'm coming into this just isn't gonna match that, that book in that context. But what if we were, encouraging students to imagine they could take their full backstory. They're going back generations and they could take their context and their full knowledge of who they are and place themselves within a story, what would happen? And I just think it's, it's that, it's a, something that we haven't been seeing. And I say we grandly, assuming that there are many amazing teachers out there who are doing such good things, but, um, that I feel like I've missed that opportunity to engage students who broadly weren't represented in, in the collection of published books um, to connect more deeply with story. 
So you're getting at two things that um, came up for me a lot in this book, and I'm, I'm going to try to remember to address what, each one, one at a time. And um, one is this notion that um, of representation of who's represented on, on our bookshelves, right? And so thinking about um, who's showing up and there, I think there's a bit of a double standard in that, right? And so um, what happens in what Ebony Elizabeth Thomas writes about, specifically in the Hunger Games chapter about Rue, is that the outrage that so many um, readers felt when the Hunger Games was made into a movie and Rue was cast as an African-American um, young woman. And there was a lot of overt racism, but also just like, what? If, if Suzanne Collins wanted her to be Black, she would have said so. And it reminded me a little bit of um, Ijiwo Maolio when I saw her speak a, a couple years ago. Um, she said, um, what if we, if, what if we use the word white the way we use black or other words so that every single time we were talking about a white person, a white political figure, a white person in history, a white character, we put the words white. Because it seemed to me what they were saying is she never said black. So the default is white. And I know that absolutely echoes my experience as a reader um, to this day that I I recognize that my default imagination and in, in my visualization of what's happening in those stories is by default white people, unless I have indicators on the cover or in the description in the text that they are distinctly not white. Um, and I haven't even recognized that as a problem um, for myself. That is so disturbing to me, right? It's like we have been so, you and I are about the same age. I think yes. we know this. And we have been so exposed. The canon has been so white that as default readers, we assume white no matter what. And I'll be honest, like, I think I do that too, unless I've thought a lot about this. And it's, you know, I'm not, a, I'm, I'm not proud to admit it, but unless the author is a person of color, I think I do assume white. I, I, I agree with that. And I am disturbed personally, right? As somebody who I consider myself a brown person, an Asian American, and uh, I, I'm not looking, I'm not even looking for myself in the book in terms of like uh, what my racial experience is in the world and in, in the United States. I'm not even looking. And uh, I'm not sure if that's a good thing or a really horrible thing. What gave me hope in this book is in, again, in the chapter about Harry Potter, specifically Hermione, is um, when our author talks about people younger than her, who I think, uh, I think she's younger than us. So um, I think by, by about 10 years. Yeah, I'm yes. But people even younger than her, um, uh, especially black girls saw Hermione as black, read Hermione as black. They said brown or dark frizzy hair and brown eyes. She's black like me. And, and, uh, and then later um, when, um, J.K. Rowling wrote the play, I've forgotten the name, but Harry Potter and the Cursed Child or something like that. Um, and on the theater stage, uh, Hermione was played by a black girl. Um, 
that, you know, it, it confirmed that for them even more. But like, I love this distinction between Ebony Elizabeth Thomas saying, oh, yeah, I read Hermione is white and couldn't relate to these younger black women reading Harry Potter and saying, oh, no, Hermione's a black girl. And there are whole tumblers and blogs about this. And I, I kind of I think to me what that says is that, is that our imagination is slowly being liberated. I love that. And I love that we're seeing it kind of transition and. And I, I, I regret it's that idea of emancipating the, the imagination and the collective imagination and as well as the individual imagination. And it's so necessary because the fact that you're saying that different people are reading the same text and seeing different people within it and it means that it, it, it's possible, right? The, and so often, and I think this might be a product of the education I received as a child, is that there was this myth that was perpetuated about this the sanctity of text, right? And that what we read is, is absolute and true and um, there's only one way to interpret it and there's a right way and a wrong way. I am so relieved to hear that we're moving past that and that there's much more room for people to interpret and imagine the life within a book in multiple ways. And it's not just in your closet or in your treehouse, but, mm. but it's part of the public dialogue. Yeah. Well, and so that leads me to this other thought about um, the canon <laughs> and um, I follow Ebony Elizabeth Thomas on Twitter because, yeah, <laughs> she's brilliant. And uh, if you're on Twitter, you should follow her, too. Um, and uh, she talks a lot about she she really and she talks about it in this book, too, in lots of different places. It really um, tickled my brain about um, she says teachers and professors today are deciding what goes into curriculum and on our syllabi. We are choosing which stories get retold, restoried. Parents, families, and caregivers also choose stories, but nostalgia is tempting. We want our kids to love what we loved as children. And I think this is really true in the classroom. So I think it's especially like in high schools where everybody reads a separate piece or Catcher in the Rye or To Kill a Mockingbird, right? Those are all great books, but they're not the only great books. And being stuck in an old canon is problematic, right? Not just because those books were written by people who maybe hadn't considered the, the troubles and controversies and the, and the joys that we've experienced in the contemporary world, but also because those books are written in a time that was more colorblind and less critical of, um, of, of the world and of uh, colonization and racism and, and the legacy of those things. I absolutely agree. And, you know, I think I, I'm feeling like I'm finally old enough to see that thinking is shifting and the way that we um, critique something that's published today is far different than the way we were thinking about it 20 years ago, which isn't that long ago. And certainly um, the books of my childhood, uh, we weren't even 
imagining that we should critique them. Um, so I grew up with books like the Little House on the Prairie series and um, who else? All of the Judy Bloom books. They were big in my childhood. And, um, and then books like um, My Side of the Mountain mm -hmm. and Ju Julie of the Wolves. And you were mentioning not too long ago, the Scott O'Dell books. Um, these are books that, that were common and Huck Finn. Um, and there's a lot of relevance in those books still, but we're reading them different. We have to read them differently because we have 30 or 40 years of, of collective shared life and thinking um, behind it now. And um, it's, it's just kind of fascinating to think back to the things that we so highly valued and prized um, as children and they look different now. Well, and I think about that because I do remember um, at fourth grade, Miss Polink, God, I loved her so much. She was the best teacher ever. And she read Island of the Blue Dolphins to us, Scott O'Dell's book. And I was in love. I was in love with that book. I was in love with the story. I was in love with Ms. Polink. I was just so there. I could hardly wait every day for her to read that book aloud to me. And it meant so much to me, right, that book. And now all these years later, I know that that book, we all know that that book is problematic, right? It's not an own voices story um, and that Scott O'Dell took liberties. And um, I think it's tempting. And I've known many teachers, uh, elementary, middle and high school students who are like, but that book has to be shared because kids love it. And um, I think there's that what in that tweet, Ebony Elizabeth Thomas talks about nostalgia, and there's this notion that it's the book. And the truth is, there are books written this year that will have that same impact on students and be more culturally relevant and sustaining than Scott O'Dell's um, Island of the Blue Dolphins. If I were to teach that book again, it would be so different than when I was in fourth grade because we'd need to look with a critical lens at, at what's happening in that storytelling. I probably wouldn't teach it. I'd probably instead seek out a book um, by a native writer, right? I would seek out The Marrow Thieves, say, or some other book written by a, a First Nations or an indigenous person to tell a story like that instead. And probably the, the students in my class would have an equally powerful experience like I had at that time because they're being read a brilliant story by a person they care about. It's, it's amazing and I love hearing that from you who, who is so in tune with the world of publishing and what's coming out and how things have changed that, that writing is getting better. It's not just... Um, you know, the old icons that that were incredible at their time and, st and still have incredible pieces, but they're excellent writers today. And um, the way that writing is happening, it's, it's exploring identity and experience in different ways. And that is so rich. And, and I'm one of those people that might feel nostalgic about certain books that I love and, and, and I cherish for some reason and they're old, right? I think if I were 
to teach them now, I, I would really want to give kids that opportunity to be fan fiction authors um, as they engage in those books. And rather than having them write about, if you were facing the challenge that whomever was facing, what might you do? I would ask them to, to like reimagine the story in a way, you know, take certain elements that we think are important, take the arc of the story and reimagine it. And that could be an amazing kind of substitute for a book report, right? I couldn't agree more. As I was reading this, because Ebony Elizabeth Thomas is deeply wrapped up in this fan fiction community and thought, talking about trans media and all these interesting things, I was like, why aren't we assigning fan fiction? Why aren't we giving it as an option for kids to like put themselves in, in these stories, imagine different characters or imagine different um, outcomes. And then also I was thinking about um, the other point I wanted to make when you talked earlier is the power of counter story. And I wonder if we wanted to, I know that interested both you and I, to talk a little bit about how she uh, uses counter story or talks about using counter story in this book. Do you want to explain or shall I? I would love it if you set it up, Jeannie. Okay, so counter story is, um, it comes from critical race theory. And it's this idea that we can um, learn from uh, telling the story from a different perspective, from the non-dominant perspective. And we can, um, that, that that is a form of not just resistance, but of scholarship. And so in this case, one of the counter stories that um, Ebony Elizabeth Thomas tells is she um, reimagines um, the Hunger Games from Rue's perspective. And so uh, Rue takes center stage and there's a, let's see if I can find the quote in here about that. Um, she says, and this comes from, um, this comes from fan fiction actually. And it, it, it's the um, label of a, a, a GIF. Do we say GIF or GIF? I say GIF. I'm going yeah. with it. Mm -hmm. G-I-F. And um, it says, um, can we just stop? This is from page 63. Can we just stop and talk about this for a minute? Thresh doesn't make an alliance. Thresh doesn't waste time liking Katniss. Thresh knows that either he must kill her or she must kill him for one of them to win. But this is the only way he can repay her for protecting Rue when he couldn't. It's the only way he can repay her for honoring Rue when he couldn't. He honors her by sparing her friend, the girl who would have died for her. The revolution really doesn't start with Katniss. It starts with Rue. I love that. I love that recentering of um, an event or a moment in a story because often it, we're, we're stuck in the lens of, in that instance, Katniss, right? And that we're seeing it through her experience and we're centering her storyline, her plot line. And I love that, that in that um, entry, they're recentering, they're thinking about Thresh's experience and then also Rue, like centering Rue in that, in that very, very pivotal moment. And if you don't stop, to wonder, to kind of do a 360 view of a scene. You'll just keep going. It's it's easy and it's amazing <laughs> to get carried away with the life of a book and let it just take you away and, and not 
um, necessarily have a lot of agency while you're reading. But what that excerpt that you just read just reinforces to me that it's so important to stop and do a 360 view and reread or re-envision the situation from multiple characters' point of view. Yeah. Well, and, it, and you know, there are a couple places in this book where Ebony Elizabeth Thomas asks, is it that Black kids don't like to read? Like, is it that Black and Brown kids don't like to read? Or is it that we keep giving them books and hoping they'll connect with characters that are very unlike them? Right. And, uh, and I think we we don't really know, right? Because we haven't done the study. And yet why would the second thing not be true, <laughs> right? Why why can't we put things out there in front of kids that really do reflect their experience in the world, at least as an entry point, right? Well, and so when I was a K-6 librarian, I did this workshop with the Flynn, and it was about, um, I think it was called Words Come Alive, and I really loved it. And um, the thing that I took away from it was that, and the thing that felt true to me as a reader and as the mother, a mother who read to her son, is that reading is really about connection, right? That reading to my son as a young person was about him being on my lap, about cuddling, and um and it was an emotional experience. And when I saw kindergartners come in who had been read to, the thing I noticed is that they felt the emotion of the story, right? Like they got wrapped up in the emotion of the story. That's really why we read is because it makes us feel things, right? And um, kids who hadn't been read to often felt disconnected from the story or looked disconnected from the story. And so what Words Come Alive did, this is an aside, but I think it's an important one, is it had us um, have kids stand up in their own bubble space, right? Like they had their like, bubble space is really what we do all the time now in COVID. It's like having their social distance. And, um, but we called it bubble space then. They'd have their own space and they would act out the story, not like a play, but I would read the picture book aloud, usually a second time and ask them to say, um, like, I remember Scaredy Squirrel and be like, Scaredy Squirrel was really scared. Could you show me what his, what that would look like? Right. And they would like, the emotions would play out in their bodies and their faces. And what we were doing was building this emotional connection to story. Right. And um, I do think there's something to this experience of a reader and noticing when do you feel emotionally connected to a character? And I have some curiosity about that. When does that happen for students? When does that happen for when we're reading aloud? Who feels connected? Who doesn't? Why? And how we might use that to think about representation in our stories? I love that question, Jeannie, because often as, a, as an educator, we ask those questions about how kids are connecting to story as a means for assessment of student learning. But what if we asked that same question and used it as assessment um, of the collection that we're offering or, you know, our, our role as curator um, and how, what a good job we're doing of that. And if it's, if it's creating an environment so that kids can have meaningful connections to story. Oh my goodness, Amy, you are speaking my language. This is delightful because I think so much about, um, 
formative assessment, formative feedback, not just being feedback to learner how to get better, but for feedback to teacher about like, what are we doing that's working or not working? And so whether it's the collection or the curriculum, right? Like who sees themselves in the curriculum? Where does it feel relevant and connected to students' lives, right? This feels really like, um, useful. And if it doesn't, either how do we help them make that emotional connection or how do we find curriculum and content that already feels emotionally connective for them? And I, the how, Jeannie, it's, it's just you and I have been doing some soul searching and internet searching these past few weeks as we've been reading The Dark Fantastic, but also putting together our thoughts for building the anti-racist bookshelf. And one of the delightful things that we found is that there are so many resources out there and great lists of books that appeal to different types of readers and have representation across the spectrum. And it is so um, heartwarming to see that it's, it's not that hard to go find inspiration about what other books we could be adding to our collections. Well, and Yes, we have. And it's been a delight. And I think about like, um, this book isn't just about representation in general. Um, it's really about representation in the fan, what, what Thomas calls the fantastic, um, which she also refers to as a world that never was. So she gives examples like, like Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, which you brought up earlier, or Barry's Peter Pan, Harry Potter. And increasingly, there are so many more um, uh, fantasy or fantastic books available written by people of color. So I know that um, the Binti trilogy is a huge um, favorite with my colleague and friend, Life Lagueros, um, by, I'm not sure I'm going to get her name right, but I'm going to try, Nettie Okorafor, Okorafor, Nnedi Okorafor, um, Tommy Adeyemi's Children of Blood and Bone series is another one that's really like ringing true for readers, Justina Ireland's Dread Nation, and I am currently really in loving, this one's more of an adult, um, older, young adult book, The City We Became by N.K. Jemison. And I'm reading it in tandem with The Dark Fantastic. And what I'm really interested in is the way N.K. Jemison is subverting the dominant paradigm. So in this book, The City We Became, our heroes are this motley multicultural crew, right, from all sorts of backgrounds. And our, our uh, villain, is Dr. White. She is a white woman. She dresses in white. She, uh, the tentacles, the evil tentacles she creates are white. And, um, and there's some real, like, I, I just love the way this book is handling topics like gentrification and white supremacy in these really subtle ways where, where white is the evil. And so, um, I think there's more and more available in this realm of magic that is so important because uh, Ebony Elizabeth Thomas talks about how if you want to see uh, black and brown people in literature, you have to look at realistic fiction, historical fiction, and it's all about struggle. And what if you just want to see representation in a way that's that's imaginative and, and um, fantastical and magical and not just in the struggle? I think... All of those things are so exciting, Jeannie. <laughs> and uh, listening to you talk about um, 
the city we became and, and that kind of binary of black and white and one being evil and one being good. Um, I, I haven't read that book yet, but I'm wondering about what your experience is in having that turned on its head and, and if it's resonating throughout, you know, beyond the book into the way you're seeing the world. That's a good question. I'm wondering myself if I would notice it as starkly as I do if I weren't reading Dr. Thomas, right? And so that's that's one wondering I have. Um, there's this point in the book, I'm actually listening to it on audio and it's a brilliant audio book because it has all this added production layers that I'm just loving. But there's this one point in the book where um, uh, the a young woman from Staten Island um, whose father is a cop, she's Irish American. And she is really talking about how she's in the car with Dr. White and she can't see Dr. White as evil because Dr. White is all the things she associates with not evil. She's white and she's female and she's well-dressed, right? And so you're really seeing white supremacy in action. And reading that, listening to that at the same time that there was a coup happening in the cap in the capital uh, that we didn't take very seriously because they were white people was this like moment of like resonance with the text. And so I'm kind of loving it. I'm loving this like subversion and the way in which it feels really relevant in this moment. And I suppose that gets me, Amy, to this conversation you and I have been having over and over again about windows, mirrors, and sliding doors. And so, so often when we talk about uh, representation in young adult literature, we're talking about mirrors. And there's this infographic, I'll put a link in the transcript that you and I've been using about how, um, how if you're white, you're like surrounded by mirrors because so much of children's literature, I can't remember the percentage, but it's a huge percentage is written from a white perspective. And the second one is animals. And then at the far end are uh, indigenous native youth who are looking in like a mirror the size of a makeup compact, teeny tiny little mirror. And, um, and so much of the conversation is about who sees themselves represented. But I feel like there's this other conversation that's, that's becoming more increasingly more important to me, which is the conversation about windows. And, and you and I have been sort of playing with this idea of what would that infographic look like if it was less about mirrors, who sees themselves represented, and more about windows, who do we see represented that's different than ourselves? Um, and so we've been talking a little bit about Rudine Sims Bishop and her concept of, of windows and mirrors and sliding doors. And that's very commonly heard of, a phrase that's um, used when we think about literature. Um, Ebony Thomas, Ebony Elizabeth Thomas takes a different quote from Rudine Sims Bishop than we than often hear. And um, at the end of that quote, she says, Rudine Sims Bishop says, my assessment was that historically children from parallel cultures have been offered mainly books as windows into the lives that were different from their own. And children from the dominant culture had been offered mainly fiction that mirrored their own lives. All children need both. Yes. I've been thinking more and more about how that um, 
if we drew that infographic as windows, it would just be everybody looking through a peephole at such a narrow slice. And that uh, hopefully what I'm seeing now in children's literature publishing, although not fast enough if we keep following that infographic, is that peephole is sort of starting to expand. So maybe now it's like a porthole in a, in a cruise ship. Yeah. And I, it, uh, one of the um, teachers we were having this conversation with suggested the idea of a snow globe as the window and that it's it's a 360 view of mostly whiteness um and and i don't know if this was her intention but it's a shiny glass surface so for her being a white educator it was really reflecting back um who she is and that's kind of the the world of literature that she's surrounded by um and yet there is this little, it's an interesting um, metaphor because you can see through a snow globe into things that are beyond, but it's really not within your immediate um, household, so to speak. We just get glimpses. And mm -hmm. if all of those glimpses are just like, I, I worry about um, those glimpses becoming um, a single story. And I think I know that Ebony Elizabeth Thomas talks about this idea of a single story too. And so by all means, read The Hate You Give with your students. Like, I think that's a crucial book to read with students. But if you're only reading books where black and brown people get shot, that's a single story, right? So read The Hate You Give, but also read um, The Season of Sticks Malone, right? Like also read um, books... Uh, read the Binti trilogy with your students or Children of Blood and Bone. Read, like, make sure that you're not only reading books by black and books by and about black and brown people that are set in the civil rights era, that are about struggle, that are set in inner cities. And, and one of the things that you've really been uh, keeping an eye on and thinking about is um, books about black and brown young people that are outside in the natural yeah. world. Yeah, and there, there's when you talk to people who are who consider themselves to be nature educators or people who are connected to nature and want to build that relationship um, for their students or um, between nature and, and their own students. Um, there's a there's a canon of books that's that's in circulation that are very common, and they're books like um, Blueberries for Sal, and We're Going on a Bear Hunt, and My Side of the Mountain, and Hoot, and these are all books that whose characters are white, and it's not something that is necessarily uh, in focus when people are experiencing these books, but when you are repeatedly um, exposing students to books that are only portraying uh, white people in joyful, playful, exploratory relationships with the natural world. And there's an absence of black and brown people having those experiences. Then it puts this, this limit on our imagination. It really limits the window. And as you were saying, we've got uh, so many books that are about black struggle and brown struggle. And they're wonderful ways for young students to learn about history um, as, a, as a storytelling entryway and then go deeper into to the facts of what happened. Um, but if indigenous people, black people, brown people, people from um, 
different parts of the world that have immigrated to the United States over time are only portrayed within these problematic um, moments in our history, then it, it deprives all of us of the possibility to imagine joyful, positive, thriving black and brown people um, and also limits our imagination on who can show up to celebrate life, who can show up to solve the problems that we're facing, who can show up as leaders um, and, and who can show up as like a good friend someone that you can confide in, somebody that you can have a meaningful relationship with. So when I look at the, the canon of books that's portraying this nature relationship and I see predominantly white characters, my concern is, is the limit on our imagination of, of what's possible mm -hmm. um, in that relationship and who can be present. And it doesn't make it impossible, but it makes it less probable. I think about one of my heroes is Brian Stevenson, who wrote Just Mercy. And I heard him interviewed recently on, um, on Krista Tippett's On Being, and he was talking about how he grew up, he didn't know a single lawyer. He didn't know a white lawyer. He certainly didn't know of anybody who was a black lawyer. And he became a lawyer, right? And, and, and um, that's possible. It's not that it's not possible, but how do we make it less of a struggle or less like, you know, just to, just to use the Hunger Games, since we were talking about it earlier, how can we make it more like, may the odds be ever in your favor? Not just for Katniss, but for Rue, right? Not just for white kids, but for all kids. I, I've been thinking about um, the Hunger Games this morning and wondering as I read it um, before the movie, which is really hard to separate in my memory these days because once I see a movie, then I can't see what I saw before the movie. Um, but I was wondering, how did I experience that book? Like who was I identifying with as I read it? And I think, I'm pretty sure I identified with Katniss. She doesn't mirror me, but I think she's she's framed as the heroine of the story and she's framed as something um, admirable and desirable, right? In terms of like who one could be. And so as a reader, that's who I put myself um, in the place of. But I wonder, you know, what impact does that have on my imagination of who can be that heroine? Could it have been Rue? And um, Ebony Elizabeth Thomas gets deep into the significance of Rue and the possibilities of who she could be as a black girl and all of the kind of um, significance and symbology that she has as a black girl in current modern society and, and how it's problematic that she almost couldn't be Katniss and that she had to fulfill the role that she did as possibly as catalyst, possibly as a sacrifice, um, possibly as an assistant to the heroine. But there were there was a there were limitations on acceptance of her as possibly um, becoming the the lead heroine in the story. 
Well, and there's all this wrapped up in who can be the the innocence of of childhood she writes about was always meant to be about the innocence of white childhood, right? And so, um, and I, I want to mention two things about this. Uh, she talks, um, Ebony Elizabeth Thomas talks a lot. We love her, don't we? Can we just say how much we love her and her thinking? In talking about um, uh, the problem with innocence in the dark fantastic, Ebony Elizabeth Thomas on page 55 writes, something about Black childhood confounds children's and young adult literature, which is why Black characters are often trapped in narratives about slavery, civil rights, ghetto survival, or survival in the white world. While historical fiction and contemporary realism are important genres for Black childhood and teen life, Black children and adolescents are often missing from other kinds of stories, especially stories like The Hunger Games. And she goes on to talk about when when we think about childhood as innocence, um, it's not a symbol of innocence at its embody, as an embodiment. This innocence was raced white. I think that's really powerful. I think it's really problematic, right? And I, I, I have hope that authors like N.K. Jemison and, and Tommy Adeyemi and et cetera, are, um, are, are transforming that. But it, it made me think of two things. One is it made me want to reread so many things with this critical lens, right? And two, it made me realize there is such potential in using books like The Hunger Games, young adult books, as ways to analyze literature that is missing from especially high school curriculum. You middle school teachers are great. You're often using these amazing uh, middle grades books, but I, I want to see more of this read, this like critical analysis of young adult literature in high school. I wholeheartedly agree with you, and I think um, I think you and I would have absolutely loved having that opportunity as high school students to critically analyze. Um, the books we were reading, which happened to be To Kill a Mockingbird and Huck Finn and Romeo and Juliet. Those were the things that I was reading in high school and I would love the chance to go back and look at that from a critical lens. Um, When you were reading that excerpt um, about the Hunger Games and the innocence of a child and it being um, associated with white children only, um, it kind of sparked an, a different side of that coin for me, which is this idea that um, Black children, especially in this country, um, are born into racism. And, and that's something that is reality for them since the day that they're born and can be aware of their surroundings. Um, And I've had the experience in teaching where parents of white children want to protect their innocence um, for an extended period of time of not not wanting to know, not not wanting their children to know about the civil rights movement and slavery and racism in history, um, much less racism today as we experience it. Um, Parents have been wanting to protect their young white children from it. This is not all parents, but some parents. And and I understand that in terms of, you know, developmentally appropriate timing to, to take on um, challenging issues for students at a time when they can 
process it when they have the ability to cognitively. However, there's this tension for me that black children don't have that grace. They need to address and understand um, the reality of racism from the time that their feet hit the ground. And so it's, it's related to this idea that we can't imagine collectively, we can't imagine the innocence of a, being held by a black character and that, but then we also protect innocence for our white children um, more so than we do for everyone else. Oh gosh, there's so much there. I feel like we could talk for days about this. And um, one of the things I'm thinking about is, um, uh, I, I'm thinking about how often in schools we perpetuate these notions that the dominant group can't experience um, art and culture by the non-dominant group. And so I saw a tweet the other day that said, every time a librarian hands a book that features a female protagonist to a boy, a kitten feels the warmth of the sun or something like that. I'm kind of butchering it, but like, I totally felt that because there's this assumption that boys won't read books about female characters and um, that with lead female characters in the same way that there's this assumption that white kids won't read books about that, that focus on black and brown kids. And that makes me really sad because I think that's a huge part of why we are where we are today. I was listening to NPR right before the Georgia runoff election. And I, I heard this woman interviewed and she was from Georgia and she was saying, well, it has to go, you know, Trump, Georgia had to have gone for Trump because everybody I know voted for Trump. And I've been to three Trump rallies and everybody at the Trump rally supported Trump. And I was like, huh, that's our problem with windows again. That's like, I can't imagine another reality because I've only had my reality. I've I only experienced that. my reality and who she gets to vote for who she wants to vote for. But the fact that she couldn't even imagine anyone outside of her own experience to me is like a problem with our canon. And so we just had, um, Dina Simmons, Dr. Dina Simmons, who's amazing at the middle grades conference on Saturday. And she was asked a question about what about people who want to opt out in thinking about um, racism? And she was like, you mean white people want to opt out, right? Because black people don't get to opt out. Brown people don't get to opt out. And so uh, later somebody brought up that their school is, their middle school is reading Ghost Boys by um, Jewel Parker Rhodes. And do we let kids opt out of The Catcher in the Rye? Do we let them opt out of Shakespeare? Like, why do we let them opt out of stories that um, focus on um, black and brown students, especially um, when, you know, when they're experiencing violence like we see in the real world, right? Mm -hmm. And also, please don't make that the only book you're teaching by and about black young people, right? Like, please don't let that be the single story you're teaching in your middle school. So it's brought up a lot of feelings for me. Yeah, but it speaks exactly directly to white privilege and the fact that um, we entertain the question that some people can opt out and it's, and it's clear that it's the, the, the families of white children that are choosing to opt out. I, why are we even entertaining that question? 
And, um, and why don't all kids get to see themselves in playful ways, which is really, and in fantastical ways and magical ways, which is really the question that our author here, that Dr. Thomas is asking. Okay, I have one more thing I wanna ask you about. Great. Because you helped me think so much. I've been thinking a lot about own voices, meaning um, own voices movement is really about, um, it's not just important that we have black and brown characters on ourselves, but those be written by um, black and brown authors, right? And that who gets the right to tell whose story. And I've been thinking about that because, um, well, because of N.K. Jemisin's book, um, I've been thinking about she writes all sorts of characters, right? So she is a black woman and she's writing um, a character who is Native American. She's writing a character who is um, Indian American, first generation Indian American. She's writing a character who's Irish American. And I've been thinking about like, oh, is, is that okay? Just like I did, will not read American Dirt, which is um, a Mexican immigration story written by um, a white woman. And I, I'm like, yeah, I don't need to read that. And what it's got me thinking about is, is it easier for black and brown people to write own voices, to write stories about white folks because they're immersed in white culture? And is it really that white folks need to avoid that? Because we are not. That is so interesting, Jeannie. And I have to tell you, it's resonating um, with me in terms of our experiences, our different experiences in settler colonialism. Mm -hmm. And so I, I experience white culture um, with the ability to see it from the outside because it's very different from what my home culture has been, um, what I was growing up with. And, and as a child, it felt like dissonance of like, why can't I be like all the other families? Mom, why can't you be like Kendra's mom? And she lets her do this. And I want to have these kind of clothes. And I don't want to eat that kind of food. So it was this tension for me, really under the umbrella of assimilation. But it was really because the tension was always there. I was... It, heightened, my awareness was heightened around, um, around home culture and dominant culture. And I didn't have those words and I didn't have the words for white culture at the time. Um, it was just this heightened awareness of, of difference. And so, you know, as I've gotten older, I can see the water that I'm in. I can, I can see what those um, cultural touchstones are that are different from my home culture. Um, and I'm aware of it and I can make choices about it. Sometimes I'm not aware of it. I, I want to put that out there. I'm full, I've got biases. I don't know what all of them are. Um, but when I do become aware of it, it's easy for me to, to understand the something different because I, I've lived something different there are many more somethings different. But so my wonder for you, Jeannie, is like, how do you experience settler colonialism and culture of whiteness? Oh, gosh, we need another hour or two. Um, I think that uh, that's a really great question. And I think, I don't know about other folks, but as a white person, a white woman, uh, it has been a series of 
paradigm shifts, right? Like, and I have to continually look for paradigm shifts to help me see, um, to help me get enough distance to see the brainwashing, to see the water, right, that I swim in. And so I think that's why I seek out books like Ebony Elizabeth Thomas's is to help me see more clearly what I haven't been able to see, what I've mostly lived and been indoctrinated into. And so um, taking a class with the amazing Marie Vey last summer to think about um, decolonization was really these, like it's intense being friends with Judy Dow and, and learning from her and from you and from so many people from my friend, Rianne and Kim, from so many people in my life helps me to like sort of step back and see the world a little more clearly and less myopically. And so there's a quote, um, uh, Christy Nold sent to me from this blog, um, from Chad C. Everett is his name. And his blog is called Imagine Lit, one word. And um, I just pulled it up because I think it's really relevant. And in, it could be in conversation with this book and in conversation that we're having. It says, you can have a variety of races, abilities, gender identities, etc., represented on your shelves and still be racist, prejudiced, or homophobic in your practice and the way in which you live your life. If we stop at the presence of diverse literature on our shelves, we have missed the point. I fear that some of us have approached acquiring literature that accurately represents individuals from marginalized groups, like going out and looking for insert marginalized group friends. See if you, see, if you walk up and ask me to be your black friend, you aren't gonna like my response. For some reason though, we do not see dropping a book with individuals from marginalized groups into our classroom libraries and doing nothing else with it in the same way. And so I think about um, one of the ways in which I start, I start to learn to shift perspectives and see the water of racism and is by through relationships with people of color. And, um, and one of the things that makes me really sad about the current state of our world is that we're more segregated than ever. And, um, and so it means that we're less likely, like I was way more likely in college. I had so many different um, kinds of friends in all sorts of ways in college. And as you move beyond college, that becomes less and less likely because our world is so segregated. And one of the avenues in for me is that I grew up really poor. And so poverty, in a way, my experience of poverty, even now as a very middle-class person, is one um, intersection that allows me to, to, to see classism more clearly. And, and as a woman, right, like I can see patriarchy a little more clearly. I don't know if that answered your question or just muddied the waters further, but I'm really interested in this notion. And I'm really interested in this notion that it's not enough, just what's on our bookshelves. It's also about the media we consume, who we're in conversation with, where we get our news, who we're friends with, who we're following on Twitter. Like we need to make sure that we're seeking out diverse voices in all aspects of our lives. Jeannie, I think, I think that's that you've landed on it, that the, the we need to instill that practice of seeking out diverse voices. And, um, and I think it's not just about diversifying the bookshelf, but then, you know, putting those books that speak of different experiences and 
counter story, putting them in the hands of students and centering them. So it's not just enough to say, well, if I have this book on my shelf, maybe that one boy who's who happens to believe Brown and is interested in sports or music or whatever it is, maybe he'll find it, right? But maybe that book is more important, not more important, but just as important for the 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 light-haired girl who is living her Barbie world <laughs> and that works for her because maybe she's never going to be challenged. Um, so I think it's again it's about diversifying our exposure right it's not just about making the options available but putting it in somebody's hands. Becoming comfortable having conversations about it. So I, I would challenge our listeners. I would challenge teachers. My guess is that if we stacked up all the books kids are exposed to in their in their schooling, there's going to be this enormous stack from white perspectives, and there's going to be a much 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 smaller stack from non-white perspectives, all the different non-white perspectives together. That infographic that we're gonna put in the transcript is gonna, is gonna show what that kind of would look like. So I, I've been thinking about this. I've been thinking about it as a reader myself. If I only read black and brown authors for the rest of my reading life and I read a lot, I'm still never gonna catch up. I'm still not gonna balance those stacks. So if we as teachers only read books from the perspectives of marginalized communities, black and brown people, poor folks, queer folks, right? Uh, differently abled folks, like we, we would still never catch up with the perspectives kids are exposed to from dominant culture. We would never catch up, but we're pushing on the edges of our collective imagination. and. Honestly, that is what we really, really need to do to, to have the capacity um, to collectively imagine a future that's better for all of us um, and not just for some of us. And I think we're unknowingly limiting that future visioning by the media exposure and who's get, whose voices get heard and whose stories get told because um, we, we haven't yet developed that that collective muscle of really envisioning a different future. It's, it, we just are so limited. Um, and so I, I, I'm excited about that possibility. And I'm excited about expanding our collective imagination to what is curriculum, who's represented in the curriculum, to what is, uh, how kids engage in the world and like looking beyond the ways they're engaging in the world. I would, I think that Ebony Elizabeth Thomas gives us this great language to really push past, not just what's represented in, in the fantastic, as she calls it, but in our world, right? Like how do we expand our collective imagination? And you, Amy, have really helped me expand my imagination in so many ways. I wanna thank you so much for working with me on, um, collaborating with me on the um, webinar, which was really your instigation. I guess I'm collaborating with you and, um, and for collaborating with me on my own thinking. And Jeannie, I want to um, reciprocate that gratitude because I, I did seek you out as a partner because I had this idea of, um, you know, this, this, this idea of building the anti-racist bookshelf. And I had some ideas of my own, but I knew that they they weren't 
quite where I wanted my thinking to be at and I wanted to push them further. So I invited you to join me as a thinking partner um, and a co-facilitator because I, I knew that you could add something to my thinking and push my edges um, in a way that, that I needed. And that is definitely healthy. So I thank you for playfully engaging in these conversations with me and entertaining the fantastic and um, doing the introspection with me around how are we limited and what is it that we're not yet seeing and understanding and what do we need to do to start understanding that? I love being on the learning edge with you. Thank you so much. I'm Jeannie Phillips, and this has been an episode of Vermont Ed Reads, talking about what Vermont's educators and students are reading. Thank you so much to Amy Arandia Ustensen for appearing on the show and talking with me about the dark, fantastic race and the imagination from Harry Potter to the Hunger Games. If you're looking for a copy of the dark, fantastic, check your local library. Big thanks to our producer and audio engineer, Audrey Holman. To find out more about Vermont Ed Reads, including past episodes, upcoming guests and reads, and a whole lot more, you can visit vtedreads.terraninstitute.org. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at vtedreads. This podcast is a project of the Terran Institute for Innovative Education at the University of Vermont. <laughs>